Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapters 14 through 16. This is the end of 1 Corinthians. This part of 1 Corinthians is actually not that long page number-wise. I think we're talking about five or six pages of Scripture, but there really is a lot going on in the 15th chapter. This really is foundational. So I think what Come Follow Me is trying to say is, let's slow down a little bit. Let's only do three chapters so that all of us can say, wait, this is a big one where we take our bearings as to who we are and what we believe. So much comes down to the question, was Christ resurrected? Did Jesus rise from the dead? If there was a resurrection of Christ, then all that he said and all that he did is true. He was the Son of God. There is no other way to heaven. And he lays the cornerstone of that reality by rising from the dead and showing himself to enough witnesses to make it a compelling case for anyone who sincerely investigates. That's the litmus test for world religions. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If so, then we must worship him and his father that he proclaimed if we seek the salvation that he came to offer us. Yeah, I really like that as a way to see the main point. I really see the main part of chapters 14, 15, and 16 really honing in on the 15th chapter and the discussion that Paul has with the Corinthian saints. Part of the reason why he's communicating these ideas to them is because the resurrection seemed so strange to the Greek mind. I think as especially those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and have read the Book of Mormon and understand and comprehend what Alma's teaching with the resurrection, we just assume that this was understood. But we need to know that even in Judaism at the time of Paul, there was a debate whether or not there was a resurrection. If you remember the Sadducees, which were considered the more conservative among the Jews, many of them did not believe in a resurrection, probably because the resurrection isn't heavily discussed in the Old Testament, except for a few parts. I mean, we have a few references in Ezekiel. We have a little bit going on in Daniel. I think Daniel is the main text that the Jews would look at and say, okay, clearly this is a resurrection text. We have allusions and oblique references in the Old Testament. We have some passages in Isaiah. But many of the Jews in Paul's day kind of looked at those as metaphorical or as allegories. And so there was debate even amongst the Jews. But in the Greek mind, someone being resurrected seems strange. In fact, they had views of corpses walking around above ground in the earth. And and that was very strange to them. So many Greeks thought that you would go to Hades or the underworld as a shade and you would kind of live there. And some even looked at the option of an afterlife as not even a possibility, that this was all there was. And so you you would die and that would be it. And so to Paul, this is a big deal. That is the main point. But we're not there yet. We're going to be in 14. So in chapter 14, this is a discussion that Paul's having once again about gifts. And it flows out of 13 last week talking about gifts. 
And what Paul has most recently said in 13 is that there are many gifts, and I love in verse 1 of chapter 14 that he says, desire them. And then later on in verse 12, he says, be zealous of them. So he's really speaking of gifts, and we should desire them. We should develop them. But the most important one is charity, and that's been Paul's topic. The last verse of chapter 13, he said, now abide a faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. So if you're going to be zealous, if you're going to seek after a spiritual gift, it should be charity. But while we're on the subject of gifts, Paul seems to say, can we clarify some of the doctrine about the gift of tongues? So chapter 14 is a lot about Paul trying to clarify some realities about those who are seeking and have the gift of tongues. And I think this discussion is needed today because I think there's still a lot of confusion as to what is divine and what isn't, what is a true manifestation of God when it comes to speaking unknown words that no one else can understand. When is that from God and when is it not? I think when it comes to speaking in tongues, I've seen this in some of the charismatic churches where individuals will speak in a language I don't understand and someone else will interpret that. And I think that that was going on amidst the people in Paul's day. I think he is talking about that in the 14th chapter, especially in verses 6 through 25. In those verses, Paul's honing in on the idea of speaking in another tongue. So you'll note that in every instance in the 14th chapter, Joseph will cross out unknown. He'll cross that out, and he'll write another. So verse 4, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. Joseph will cross out the word unknown and write another. And the Apostle Paul will write in the 19th verse of 1 Corinthians 14, yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. Or as it says in the King James, remember it's in, it's in italics, so the word unknown is not in, in the Greek there, but whoever it was that translated that verse for the King James translators put the word unknown. The idea in this verse that I think Paul's trying to emphasize is that the most important thing is that we teach so that people can understand. We teach so that they can be brought to the Savior and know who he is. I think that's the main point. Now, did people use the gift of tongues in Paul's day? I believe that they did, and I believe that they did it in a way whereby it would seem kind of strange to us where someone would speak in another tongue and then someone would interpret. But I believe there's another way to interpret the, these verses. And I think that's uh, through the lens that Joseph F. Smith relates to us. He said, I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit unto men, but I do not want the gift of tongues except when I need it. I needed the gift of tongues once, and the Lord gave it to me. I was in a foreign land sent to preach the gospel to people whose language I could not understand. So I earnestly sought for the gift, and by this gift and by study, and a hundred days after landing upon the islands, I could talk to the people in their language as I now talk to you in my native tongue. This was a gift that was worthy of the gospel. There was a purpose in it. There was something in it to strengthen my faith, to encourage me, and help me in my ministry. So that's Joseph F. Smith and his explanation of this. And I like that because essentially it has a purpose, it has a use, and it brings people to the Savior. And his son, Joseph Fielding Smith 
made a similar statement when he said, the true gift of tongues is made manifest in the church more abundantly perhaps than any other spiritual gift. Every missionary who goes forth to preach the gospel in a foreign language, if he is prayerful and faithful, receives this gift. And I like that where he says, it's probably one of the most abundant of all the spiritual gifts. I have a friend who went to Czechoslovakia and talked to me about this one time where he said, Mike, I was in Czechoslovakia and I couldn't learn the language and I was praying and I so desperately wanted to teach the people in their language. And I just kept working on it and I was doing the work and I was putting in the, in the reps and it just wasn't happening. And then one day I was on a bus and I was begging with my heavenly father to help me to understand the tongue. And he said, it literally happened like that. All of a sudden I could understand what they were saying and it was so much easier for me to communicate. And he said to me that he felt that that was a spiritual gift that accelerated his learning. And from then on, it was just easier. And I didn't have that experience because I didn't go on a mission where I had to pick up a language, but it strengthened my faith to hear his experience. Yeah. I love that Joseph Smith talks a great deal about the gift of tongues throughout his ministry, almost as if to clarify it. On one occasion, he said, do not speak in tongues except there be an interpreter present. The ultimate design of tongues is to speak to foreigners. And if persons are very anxious to display their intelligence, let them speak to such in their own tongues, that is, in the foreigner's tongue. Then he added, caution should always attend the use of the gift of tongues. It is not necessary, for instance, for tongues to be taught in the church particularly, for any man that has the Holy Ghost can speak of the things of God in his own tongue as well as speak in another. For faith comes not by signs, but by hearing the word of God. And I love that Joseph is kind of laying out that the idea of tongues is to communicate truth, truth that is confirmed by the Holy Ghost. If there is no confirmation, if there is no truth, if there is no divine inspiration conveyed, then Joseph seems to be saying this is not a manifestation of the gift of tongues. I like that. In verses 20 through 25, Paul gives instruction about the appropriate use of tongues in the setting of church. And one scholar wrote this, on one view, Paul here refers to tongues as a sign of judgment that causes unbelievers to stumble. That's in 1421. On another, Paul quotes 1 Corinthians 14.22 and then refutes them in 1 Corinthians 14.23-25. through 25. Prophecy was a known phenomenon in the ancient world, whereas the gift of tongues was not, or at least it was extremely rare. Ancients respected prophecy, but if they did not know beforehand to expect speaking in tongues, they would not know what was happening. Perhaps Paul would not object to a whole group simultaneously worshiping charismatically under other circumstances, but not in the Corinthian house churches where unbelievers could be alienated. Okay, we're going to use gifts, but what is the purpose? Who is there? And will it alienate people that don't know what's going on? And I think that's the essence of verse 23. When unbelievers are there in, their, in these house churches and they see this gift being made manifest, they might think, like Paul writes in verse 23, that the people doing this are a little strange. He uses the phrase, 
Are you mad? So I think sometimes religion, especially certain practices and certain traditions, can seem kind of strange. Now, do you remember that Joseph Smith pointed out that there were many who were promoting an extraordinary scene of religious excitement? And I love that Boyd K. Packer once said that the spiritual part of us and the emotional part of us are so closely tied that you can mistake an emotional experience for a spiritual one. So I would just raise a cautionary voice. Anyone listening who is bothered or concerned about some of the things they see being done in the name of religion, to recognize that a lot of people are appealing to emotion, even the emotion of confusion and weird and awe and strange, to make us think we're having a spiritual experience. The emotional part of us is so closely tied to that that many people try and imitate an emotional experience and pretend that it's a spiritual. So you need to be wise enough to know the difference between emotion and spirit. And that's an experience thing. We just need to learn the difference. You shouldn't be surprised to look out into the world of religion and see a lot of people doing unusual, odd things to evoke a religious feeling because of that, because of that play on their emotions. Yeah. So after verse 25 in 1 Corinthians 14, there's this shift towards this discussion about order. In fact, it's verses 26 to verse 40, and verse 40 reads as follows, let all things be done decently and in order. So Paul really is trying to emphasize that we want to have spiritual gifts in the church, but we also want to have the church experience be one where not everybody's speaking at once. So we kind of see this in verse 31 where Paul writes, for ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, we put some quotes in the show notes about this from some modern apostles that discuss this idea that everyone in the church is to be a prophet, in the sense that they are to have the spirit of prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus. But even though everyone in the church is to be a prophet and to have the spirit of prophecy, they are also subject to the prophets. In other words, prophets, seers, and revelators. And that's how modern apostles have understood and and taught this idea that we are all subject to those that have authority. And why is this? Verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion. The church has to have order. So I like the gist of those verses, but we got to acknowledge this, don't we, Bryce? Yeah. That there are some tricky verses in here that I think we have to address. And even that, Mike, we talk about authority, and we talk about hierarchy in the church, and we do have a hierarchical priesthood. And that causes a lot of concern because people have been abused by hierarchical systems in other places and in other times. And if one person has more authority than another, it can lead to danger. But I do remind everyone that the Lord set the standard, the Lord set the bar for hierarchy within the church. He said in Matthew, ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever shall be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, 
let him be your servant. Now, why is that? That's how the gospel is run. And at the very top of the hierarchy is Jesus himself, who was the greatest of all ministers. So the reality is, in the hierarchy of the church, the higher you go up in authority, the more of a servant and a minister you should be. And so when we speak of there needs to be order in the church, and there has to be someone who's in charge, and then someone who's in charge of that person, I think we need to understand that there's a different standard that in the church that hierarchy must, at the request of the one on the very top, include service and humility and a desire to bless lives. So Paul is saying we have to have order. And in order to have order, we have to have a hierarchical priesthood. In the gospel, the hierarchical structure also comes with a hierarchical order and a demand for love and service instead of pride as you go up that chain. And so we have to have order, and that really is the gist of 26 through 40. Now, we have to address these verses that are challenging, I think, on any level in any Christian community. I just see these as a challenge. I'm just going to read them as they appear in the King James, and then we're going to look at a couple thoughts. One is going to be from President Russell M. Nelson, and then we're going to look at some other commentary from Latter-day Saint and non-Latter-day Saint sources. So here are the verses. Verses 34 and 35 of 1 Corinthians 14 read as follows. Paul writes, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. And then he writes in verse 36, what, came the word of God out from you or came it unto you only? That's a question. Okay, so let's first talk about verses 34 and 35 and read what President Nelson said about this. Speaking to the women of the church, he said, we need your strength, your conversion, your conviction, your ability to lead, your wisdom, and your voices. The kingdom of God is not and cannot be complete without women who make sacred covenants and then keep them, women who can speak with the power and authority of God. So that's the president of the church clearly saying, we need your voice. So that doesn't jive with verse 34 and 35. So then the question is, okay, why, and this is just me, I always, I always do this, Bryce, I always go, okay, well then why is this in here? Like, especially when I read the Old Testament, I read some text and Joseph Smith is crossing stuff out saying, no, 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 and I just keep going, okay, but why, why was that put in there? Was this a scribal insertion? What was this? In fact, there are modern scholars, and, and they don't all agree, but there are some scholars today, some biblical scholars that look at these verses as a later addition by a scribe. The term they use is an interpolation by a later scribe. Now, the rabbit holes go pretty deep, and we give you some really interesting texts that you can read from other scholars. In fact, there are many academic papers that get into the different variants, the earliest manuscripts, and they even talk about this little marking that the scribes would use called a distigmai. This distigmai was found by one scholar. It's basically a pair of umlauts, which are a marking which indicates that this was probably 
something a scribe put in later. It's this, it's this way for the scribes to kind of put a mark and say, okay, this might have been an addition. And that's a possibility. Like, I don't know. I wasn't there. But just know that scholars are having these conversations. But it clearly is not in harmony with what prophets, seers, and revelators are teaching today. So you're going to have to wrestle with some of these questions. Is why is it in the Bible? Yeah, but, but yeah, why is it in the Bible? But think about this. It even contradicts stuff that Paul's saying. And Bryce, this is where a Latter-day Saint scholar gets into this. His name is Richard Anderson, and he says this. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul insists that a woman ought not to pray and prophesy without being veiled. That's 1 Corinthians 11.5. And so Brother Anderson writes, this proves that women did participate in Christian meetings. And so we have faithful women throughout Paul's writings holding house churches, working with the saints. He calls them out as women of faith, women who were leading out. Some of them, one of them is Chloe. She's even communicating with Paul, helping him to see ways that they can navigate helping the Corinthian saints uh, be better. And so I look at her as a woman who's leading out in this and speaking out. And so Brother Anderson's right. Some people even ask whether Corinthian women were interrupting meetings with questions. That's a possibility. And so maybe Paul's trying to quelch that idea, or that they were speaking out in the sense of leading out, loudly correcting the presiding authority. That's a possibility. So there's lots of possibilities here, but Paul clearly is acknowledging in other parts that women are speaking and that women have a role to play in the church. We have President Nelson saying that. And so there's lots of things that are going on that maybe we don't have the full picture. And Mike, we're going to talk about witnesses of the resurrection in the next chapter. Now, who was the first of all the witnesses of the resurrection? The very first witness of the resurrection was a woman. And if that doesn't tell you how Jesus feels about women and their role in the kingdom... And so I think you're going to have to take some of these statements in the Bible and and wrestle with them a little bit and say that is not in harmony with truth and acknowledge that maybe there are some passages in the Bible that were added later that are not in harmony with true doctrine. I'm totally open to that. I guess the last thing I'll say about these verses is that some do suggest that 1 Corinthians 14.36 actually refutes verses 34 and 35. In other words, that that might have been, this is one interpretation, that verse 34 and 35 could be Paul saying, hey, this is what you guys are doing, and verse 36 is saying that ought not to be. Maybe that was the question. It's a possibility. I, I don't, just know. don't know. Yeah, I don't even know if I'm on the side of the scholars that are making that point. And so to me, big picture, I think President Nelson's hitting the nail on the head. Sisters, we need your voice and to lead and to teach and to edify. And big picture, we're talking about three spiritual gifts. Charity, which we talked about is the greatest of them all, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And I think what Paul is saying is there are spiritual gifts and we should seek them. But we need to seek them in order to build the kingdom. Gifts of the Spirit should never be used to demean or to harm or to cause confusion or to push people away. Gifts of the Spirit are supposed to edify. If you're not edifying with your gift, you're not using it appropriately. I like that. Okay, this next chapter is really the meat of this week, and that's the the testimony that Paul has on the resurrection. Um, I think we just need to call this out, don't we, Bryce, that the issue that's 
that's really driving this is that they are struggling, that the Corinthian saints are struggling believing in a resurrection. Wouldn't you say that that's the main issue? And I think it's broader than just the Corinthian saints. I think there was still an issue among converts if the main missionary message is that there was a man in Jerusalem who died and was resurrected. I think that's an issue of faith, and Paul needs to address it. It is the cornerstone issue of faith. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And so, yeah, I think this is a major subject among the Corinthian saints that Paul needs to clarify. We can call it out right here in verse 12. If I was teaching a class, I would go right to verse 12 and say, this is the issue. And this is Paul, he writes, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So kind of the way I say it is, okay, if we are preaching that Christ raised from the dead, how come some of you guys are saying that didn't happen? That's a problem. So out of the rest of this chapter, there's 58 verses in 1 Corinthians 15. For the next 57 verses, Paul's going to basically lay down logic bricks, building brick after brick after brick, laying down a foundation saying, hey guys, this is fundamental to our faith in Christ. And if we don't get this right, we've got problems. So let's talk about that first brick that he actually begins the chapter with. How do you establish that Jesus was in fact resurrected? So if if my statement is true, that the cornerstone of Christianity is that Jesus was resurrected, how then do you establish that? Not that we need to prove it, but how do you establish that essential reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the answer that Paul's going to lay out, his first logical brick is witnesses. We have eyewitnesses who have touched and handled his hands and the nail marks in them. Eyewitnesses establish the resurrection. So Paul's going to lay out the list of eyewitnesses. Verse 5, he says, he was seen of Cephas. Now, why Paul doesn't mention Mary, I don't know, but the first witness of the resurrection was Mary. And then at some point, he needs to go to his chief apostle, the one who holds the keys. So he was seen of Cephas, Peter, and then of the current 12, the rest of the 11, because Judas was not there. But the 11, now look at the hierarchy here. He's, he's establishing his witnesses in kind of a hierarchical pattern. Jesus was seen of the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and then by the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And then adding to that list, he says, he was seen of about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. Go out and talk to them. You can talk to people. They are still alive who saw the living, resurrected Christ after his death and crucifixion. This is about 55 AD. So it's within reach. You can talk to someone. 20 years isn't that long. These guys are probably still walking around. Now, he does say some are falling asleep, but a lot of them are around. And then he was seen of James and then of the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, I am a witness of his resurrection which suggests Paul saw more than just a light. At some point, clearly, Paul became a witness of the resurrection. He was seen of me. Now, let me add to that list, because not only do we have that list, but he then goes to America. After his death and resurrection, he went into the American continent, and he asked 2,500 souls, according to 3 Nephi 17.25, 
And back in chapter 11, he asked that group to come forth one by one until they all, 2,500 souls in America, were eyewitnesses to a living Christ with nail marks in his hands and in his feet and a pierced side from a sword wound, a living, resurrected Christ. Now, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Jesus rose from the dead. That adds the witnesses. Now, let's keep going. This dispensation began with a witness of the resurrection. Behold, this is my beloved Son. Hear him. The restoration began when a young man became a witness of the resurrection. And I love that he says in section 76, After all the testimonies that had been given, he gave his testimony, and he simply said that he lives, for we saw him. Now, I would suggest to you that we hear from prophets, seers, and revelators who also stand as witnesses of the resurrection. You can find it in several of their words. I've quoted it in previous podcasts. I just want to use President Nelson, who stands as our current prophet, seer, and revelator. He began his ministry by announcing his first presidency at a press conference at the Salt Lake Temple. At that meeting, President Nelson said very powerfully, I declare my devotion to God, our eternal Father, and to his Son, Jesus Christ. I know them, love them, and pledge to serve them and you with every remaining breath of my life. Those three words resonated so deeply in my soul when he said them, and every time I read that, it does the same. When President Nelson said, I know them. I knew that was a reality. I knew then and I know today and I proclaim as powerfully as my voice can that we are led by a witness of the resurrection. That's what God has established, witnesses of his resurrection. President Gordon B. Hinckley once said, can anyone doubt the veracity of this account? No event of history has been more certainly confirmed. There is the testimony of all who saw and felt and spoke with the risen Lord. He appeared on two continents in two hemispheres and taught the people before his final ascension. Two sacred volumes, two testaments speak of this most glorious of all events in all of human history. But these are only accounts, the faithless critics say. To which we reply that beyond these is the witness and testimony borne by the power of the Holy Ghost of the truth and validity of this most remarkable event. Through the centuries, untold numbers have paid with the sacrifice of their comforts, their fortunes, their very lives for the convictions they carried in their hearts of the reality of the risen living Lord." I really appreciate that testimony by President Hinckley. And at the end of the day, it is a faith claim. We proclaim as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the risen Lord. But at the end of the day, how do you prove a resurrection? 
in the world of evidences and witnesses and proofs, to me, it is something that has to be spiritually discerned. And I understand where Paul says, hey, this seems strange to the mind that doesn't understand things of the Spirit. And I really believe that for all of us, we have to have within us that testimony, that conviction that's brought to us by the Holy Ghost. But I'm also grateful that it is available. It's available to all who honestly seek it. And it can be given, and it has been given to many, many individuals amongst many different faiths. I mean, I've been to many different Christian churches and felt the Spirit as the resurrection of Christ is taught in the various ways that it is in all of the faith traditions of Christianity. I just, I feel that, and I acknowledge it, and I think that it's good. Because wherever you are in the world, whatever your faith tradition, whether you're Greek Orthodox, or whether you're Catholic, or Protestant, or whatever your persuasion of of belief in Christ— I do believe that the Spirit is manifest in those churches to teach that fundamental truth. And I think as members of this world community, we can reach out as brothers and sisters among all faith traditions, and we can unite in the things that we can agree upon. And isn't that appropriate, Mike, that we all rally upon that reality, that we agree Jesus rose from the dead? Shouldn't that be a cornerstone for all Christian people? No matter what else you believe, can't we celebrate more that we all believe in a central, fundamental cornerstone, and that is, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I love that, Mike. Now let's go to another doctrinal block. I think Paul is not only laying out his evidence for the resurrection, but he's trying to teach truths. And the thing I love here is verse 21 and 22 is a doctrinal block that is also an evidence for the need for a resurrection. This body cannot be the culmination of God's creation. This mortal body, that makes no sense if you believe in a divine being, a powerful creator who has created unlimited, beautiful creations in the cosmos— This mortal body, with all its brokenness, cannot be the final product of a God who is so creative in his powers. And so he says, look, this is just a stage, and so we would be missing a major piece of the puzzle without a resurrection. So he teaches that by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. He's connecting the dots. I think all of them there agreed that Adam brought death into the world. I think that was a less controversial subject, and yet Paul's playing on that to say, wait a minute, if one person brought death, doesn't it make sense that one person would overcome death and bring a solution to that problem, and that one person was Jesus? As in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This mortal body is not the end product. And we are here for a divine reason, but this is not our end. We will rise in glorious immortality. And that's been the design from the very beginning. Adam brought death, Christ brought life. Paul's making that connection to a people who I think who I suspect were more unified on the belief that Adam brought death into the world, and now he's just trying to make that connection about Christ bringing life. I like that. 
So right after verse 22, where he says, in Adam all die, even so, and Christ shall be made alive, Paul makes this reference to agriculture. Look what he says in verse 23. But every man in his own order, there's that word again on order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he has delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. And then he gets into this discussion about all of his enemies will be under his feet. That's very much an Old Testament reference. Over and over again, Yahweh is the one who puts the enemies under his feet. He talks about it in verse 25 and 26 and 27. And then finally in 28, he says, when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So there's this order. The son is subject to his father. But let's look at that verse, verse 23. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. Why do you think that's important? Well, I think one of the reasons they were struggling with the resurrection is in all of the history before them, no one had been resurrected. You can imagine it's easier for us to believe a resurrection since I know someone who's been resurrected than for them who didn't know a single soul who had been resurrected. So I get that that was a struggle for them. The resurrection had not occurred. No one they knew had been resurrected. And so Paul is trying to address, let me tell you why that is. Jesus has to come first, at least on this planet. So that means no one in the Old Testament could possibly be resurrected. That means Elijah had to be translated. Moses had to be translated because they couldn't be resurrected on the Mount of Transfigurations when they gave keys to Peter, James, and John. It posed a problem. But it is a reality that on this planet, Jesus came first. I love this reference in the Book of Mormon, in Mosiah chapter 15, 20 through 23, where Abinadi is preaching to the priests of Noah. He says, But behold, the bands of death shall be broken, and the sun reigneth, and hath power over the dead. Therefore, he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. Now watch what door he opens as soon as he's resurrected. That was verse 20. Now as soon as Jesus opens that door, listen to what happens. Verse 21, and there cometh a resurrection, even a first resurrection, yea, even a resurrection of those that have been and who are and who shall be even unto the resurrection of Christ for so shall he be called. Now the resurrection of all the prophets and all those that have believed in their words and all those that have kept the commandments of God shall come forth in the first resurrection. Therefore they are the first resurrection. They are raised to dwell with God who has redeemed them. Thus they have eternal life through Christ, ready, who has broken the bands of death. So the Book of Mormon is clearly laying out that Jesus came first. He had to come first. But the moment he came forth, every righteous person, every prophet from the Old Testament, everyone who lived worthily was resurrected with Jesus. So where is Nephi? Where's Lehi? Where are all the great prophets of the Old Testament? They are not in the spirit world. They were resurrected with Christ and have since gone with him. 
So that, I think, is part of the confusion, is no one had been resurrected at that point. Therefore, he had to come first. So in connection with this idea of Christ being their first fruits and Christ putting down all the enemies, specifically death, once again, Paul emphasizes the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Then Paul discusses a practice that the Corinthian saints were involved in that both Catholic and Protestant scholars all admit that was going on. They say, hey, this was a thing. This was a thing that was happening in Corinth around 55 AD, and here's the practice, verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? To me, the way we can understand verse 29 is to go back and read verse 12. Paul is saying to them, how come some of you guys are saying there's no resurrection? And then he says, if you think about your own practice of baptism for the dead, why are you doing this practice if you don't believe in the resurrection? To those of you that don't believe, why are you doing this practice? And essentially, as Latter-day Saints, we read this and we say, okay, here's Paul discussing baptism for the dead. Now, I'll be the first to say, we don't practice baptism for the dead because there's one obscure verse in the entire Bible that discusses it. That's not why we practice it. We practice this because a prophet in our dispensation has told us that he received a revelation from the Lord that this practice is to be put forth because this is the way that we are able to be saviors on Mount Zion. This is the way that Latter-day Saints can participate in the grand work of exaltation and salvation of God's children. Everyone that comes to earth needs to be baptized, but not everyone has had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so those in the spirit world are taught, and their names are brought to the temple of the Lord, and they are there where they receive their ordinances. And one of the ordinances of salvation is baptism. And so we practice this today. And clearly, the people in Corinth were involved in this practice, and by the middle of the second century, as the Christians are writing letters to each other, th this practice is lost. And in the second and third and fourth centuries, they discuss this, and they're not even sure what was going on. But I think the one thing we can say about verse 29 is this, that this practice was going on. Latter-day Saints acknowledge it, so do other non-Latter-day Saint scholars. And we have a different position than many of our Christian friends. And our position is we're led by a prophet who's given this revelation. And this is a practice that the Savior would like the saints to participate in as they work with him in saving all of God's children. But it stands as one of the supreme examples of our belief in a resurrection, that all of these people for whom we perform baptisms for the dead will come forth someday needing a baptism in place. It is a testament of our belief in a resurrection, and that's why we perform baptisms for the dead, and that's why they did. So Paul lists that as one of his doctrinal bricks, is why would you baptize the dead if they're not going to come forth in a resurrection? That's a powerful statement. Elder Garrett Gong taught, some years ago, a priest in Central America told me he was studying Latter-day Saint baptism for the dead. It does seem just, the priest said, that God would offer every person an opportunity to receive baptism no matter when or where they lived. The Apostle Paul, the priest noted, speaks of the dead awaiting baptism and resurrection. And then Elder Gong continues. He says, Vicarious temple ordinances promise all nations, kindred tongues, and people that no one needs to remain a slave of death, of hell, or of the grave. 
And Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said once, I know that in our Father's house are many mansions, but speaking personally, if I were to be so fortunate as to inherit one of them, it could be no more to me than a decaying shack if Pat and our children were not with me to share that inheritance. And for our ancestors, some of whom lived and died anciently without ever hearing the name of Christ, we would have hoped for that most just and merciful of biblical concepts to be restored, the practice of the living offering up saving ordinances on behalf of their kindred dead. No practice I can imagine would demonstrate with more splendor a loving God's concern for every one of his earthly children, no matter when they lived nor when they died. Now, right after his discussion on baptism for the dead, at least to me in the King James, I think verses 30 through 32 can be a little tricky. So I want to talk about those. So first, I want to just read them. So here's what it says. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If, after the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage if it me, if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I admit these verses can be a little bit tricky, so let's go through them in a little bit more detail. When we look at verse 30, I think the main point that he's emphasizing is that he is in danger or peril all the time. And he, and he even uses that term for every hour. And I think a really good cross-reference with verse 30 is Alma 46, verse 7. So I'm just going to read a part of Alma 46, verse 7 to kind of relay what I think is the idea here. Now, the context of this is the war chapters. And there's this part right here that the historian Mormon inserts where he says this, the people of Nephi were in an exceedingly precarious and dangerous situation, notwithstanding their many great victories which they had over the Lamanites, and their great rejoicings which they had because of their deliverance by the hand of the Lord. Thus we see how quick the children of men do forget the Lord their God, yea, how quick to do iniquity and to be led away by the evil one. There's a couple other really good cross-references that, to me, go with 1 Corinthians 15, verse 30, and those references are Psalms 44, verse 22, and Psalm 119, verse 109. And the idea, at least to me, the way I read the text is this. In this mortal sphere... We are always in danger. If our only hope is in wealth or power or physical comforts, then good luck because you're going to be in danger. I mean, think about Korahor. One second he is leading a group of people fighting the church. The next second, like I just snapped my fingers, the next second he can't speak. And I can speak to this personally. I had an in incident in my life. I went from being normal to being totally incapacitated, and it took about two seconds, and it can happen that quick. And many of you that are listening maybe have a relative that one day got a cancer diagnosis or was in an automobile accident or your home burned down. I mean, there's so many things that can happen in life. And the security in this world, we try so hard to hold on to it, and we try to indemnify ourselves from the dangers of this world. And the bottom line is there's really not a lot of control that we have. And so we are in danger every day if, if our only hope is in the powers and comforts of this world. And I think really that is the root of this whole chapter where Paul says, that's not the point. 
It goes back to verse 19, Mike. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. This life is a horrible life if that's all we have hope in because of all the dangers that we face. But the reality is we know that that no matter what danger I face, if I do have a debilitating disease, if someone I love dies, we know that we can, as Moroni declared in Ether 12, those who believe in God might with surety hope for a better world. That hope is because of a resurrection. Yeah, I really think that's the point. And then I acknowledge verse 31 can sound kind of confusing. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I mean, that can be a little clunky. Uh, We do give another translation of this in the show notes. The, The reading goes like this. Every day I die by the glorying of you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's one way to read it. And the essence seems to be this, that dying daily is hyperbole for Paul's experience of martyrdom in his repeated sufferings for the gospel. Remember, how many times does Paul go through these experiences that bring him to the brink of death? And he's willing every time to lay down his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Elder Eyring, reading this same verse, he says this. He says, I can recall thinking at the student stage of life of consecrating my life in one grand heroic gesture. But as life progresses, our moments for consecration are specific, finite, and simple. We should be ready to consecrate our talents to the task at hand, whether or not it is a task we have envisioned for ourselves. Consecration is not a once-in-a-lifetime event. It is a daily devotion. And as Paul says, we die daily in the Lord. And so to Elder Eyring, this idea of dying daily is every day taking our talents, our, our life's work, and saying to the Lord, Lord, what will you have me do with it? And I think if we read it that way, that's another really good reading. Now, the part in verse 32 where he talks about fighting with beasts at Ephesus, I mean, what's he talking about here? Now, there were Christians that were sent to the lions in different places in the Roman Empire. And Paul may be alluding to this idea, but I will say it probably was unlikely that Paul was literally cast to beasts in any arena. Um, and why do I say this? Because if you are in an arena in this time period and you're thrown to the lions, you're not coming out of the arena. Like that's not going to happen. And so this is a possible metaphor for Paul talking about grappling with individuals that are in opposition to his message. And we see this image throughout the Bible. It's in a lot of the different Psalms. So we give some of this in the show notes, but you can just go to the 22nd Psalm or Psalm 74, and it talks about this. So this could be a figurative expression of Paul talking about his debating with individuals that don't believe in his message. So then right after that, he says in verse 35, but some man will say, well, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? And I think that question is the question that Paul is going to now address is, okay, how does this work? 
So let's break those two questions down. Let's take a few minutes with how are the dead raised up? And then we'll ask the question, what body do they come forth with? So how are the dead resurrected? I think we have this envision of everyone being resurrected all at the same time. But Brigham Young suggested another wonderful doctrine, and in his April 1977 conference address, Elder Ezra Taft Benson, who later became a president, quoted these things. So do you see a future president of the church quoting a past president of the church of a fundamental doctrine? Brigham Young said, It is supposed by this people that we have all the ordinances in our possession for life and salvation and exaltation, and that we are administering in these ordinances. This is not the case. We are in possession of all the ordinances that can be administered in the flesh, but there are other ordinances and administrations that must be administered beyond this world. I know you will ask what they are. I will mention one. Now, let me just—this is me. This is—let me step aside. Brigham Young is saying that this life—we don't administer all of the ordinances of the gospel in this life. And now he's going to talk about an ordinance, like we administer baptism, but an ordinance that we will administer in the next life. He says, I will mention one. Now back to Brigham Young. We have not, neither can we receive here, the ordinance and the keys of the resurrection. They will be given to those who have passed off this stage of action and have received their bodies again. As many have already done, and many more will, they will be ordained by those who hold the keys of the resurrection to go forth and resurrect the saints just as we receive the ordinance of baptism, then the keys of authority to baptize others. Brigham Young is suggesting that that's how the resurrection will come to pass. It is an ordinance, and that family does it in an orderly fashion by the keys and the authority of priesthood. So just imagine, perhaps the greatest moment in my whole existence, especially if my sweet wife were to go first and I were to spend a considerable amount of time without her, imagine the glory of that moment where I get to call her forth from the dead, exercising keys and in an ordinance, what a glorious moment that would be to call forth someone you love, a child, the very people that we love the very most, to call them forth from the dead and be a participant in them coming back to life. I can't wait to hear more about that whole process and be part of it. But what a glorious healing of the pain that we all experienced when we watched them go into a grave. What if we all that have been resurrected get to again assemble at that same spot and witness and participate in them coming out of the grave. What a glorious moment that will be. Now, second question, what body do they come forth with? Now, this is a complicated question with multiple facets of answers. 
Now, we do not believe in reincarnation. We don't believe in getting a different body out that went in. We believe in same body in, same body out of the grave. It will be changed. It will be perfected. But same body in, same body out. That would suggest that if a child went into the grave, a child comes out of the grave and grants a grieving mother an opportunity to raise that child in the resurrection. President Joseph F. Smith, quoting his uncle, Joseph Smith, said the following, Joseph Smith taught the doctrine that the infant child that was laid away in death would come up in the resurrection as a child. And pointing to the mother of a lifeless child, he said to her, quote, so this is Joseph Smith speaking to a mother who just lost her child. You will have the joy, the pleasure, and the satisfaction of nurturing this child after its resurrection until it reaches the full stature of its spirit. Now Joseph S. Smith commenting, there is restitution, there is growth, there is development after the resurrection from the death. That is one of the most comforting doctrines to anyone who has laid a child in the grave. That child is going to need a mom and a dad to raise them in the resurrection until they grow into the stature of their spirit. Now, that also means one-armed person in most likely means instantaneously one-armed person out, but then gets perfected. So let's be clear, the body that comes out of the grave is going to be perfected. It might be the same body that was laid in, but it's going to be perfected. And I love the emphasis that the Book of Mormon gives. Let me just read this straight from the Book of Mormon. Alma 11, the spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Is it instantaneous? Does it take some time? We don't know, but at some point, that body and that spirit will be reunited, there's number one, and then it will come into its perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame. Notice that, restored to its proper frame. So I would guess that means one-armed person in, one-armed person out, and then that arm is restored to its proper frame. Even as we are now, we shall be brought to stand before God. Now in verse 44, he repeats it. He says, this restoration shall come to all, both old and young, bond and free, male and female, both the wicked and the righteous, and there shall not so much as a hair of their head be lost, but everything shall be restored to its perfect frame. No crutches, no pins in bones, no eyeglasses or contacts, no sutures. You will receive a perfect restored body. Now, not every one of those will be alike. Paul then goes on to teach, and this is really the only place in Scripture we really read this. But Paul does mention, in verse 40, there will be celestial bodies, and terrestrial bodies, and telestial bodies, like there are kingdoms. 
Now, nothing has been revealed about the difference between telestial and terrestrial and celestial bodies, except for one reality. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 131, speaking of the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, the Lord says the following, in the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. So not only are there three kingdoms, but within the top and probably between, within the others, there are divisions. The celestial kingdom has divisions, at least three of them. There are three heavens or degrees. In order to obtain the highest within the celestial, a man must enter into this order of priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. If he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may enter into the other, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. Now, that's in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, Joseph Smith explained that. He said, except a man and his wife enter into an everlasting covenant and be married for eternity while in this probation by the power and authority of the holy priesthood, they will cease to increase when they die. In other words, they will not have any children in the resurrection. But those who are married by the power and authority of the priesthood in this life and continue without committing the sin against the Holy Ghost will continue to increase and have children in the celestial glory. So that may be one significant difference. But the doctrine Paul is trying to teach is celestial bodies are different capable of a greater glory, I would assume, than terrestrial bodies. And terrestrial bodies would then be better than telestial bodies. That's the doctrine. So everyone gets restored. Everyone is restored to their proper frame, their perfect body. One thing I do love is the only description of a resurrected body we have in the scriptures, which is Moroni, it uses the phrase that he was glorious beyond description. I don't think you need to worry about height or weight or size in any way. Your resurrected body will be glorious beyond description. You know, Bryce, I often have high school students say, okay, what age am I going to be? And I always say, it doesn't matter. You're going to be perfect. I mean, Let's be real. Tom Cruise at 60 looks better than I did when I was 30. I mean, age is just a number. At the end of the day, we're talking about perfect. Now, as we approach verses 45 through 49, I just want to read this part in verse 45. The last man, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. This is what Elder McConkie taught regarding this. Christ is the second Adam, as the first mortal man is called Adam. So the first man to come forth in resurrected immortality is also called Adam, or more specifically, the second Adam. Adam's mortal body was a natural body, Christ's immortal one a spiritual body, meaning a body in which flesh and bones and spirit are inseparably connected. Paul uses this comparison between Adam and Christ to teach some of the basic truths about the resurrection, to teach some of the basic events that will take place when a body is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body, he says. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, 
the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. That is Elder McConkie's summation of verses 44 through 49. Then when we go to verses 50 through 57, Paul speaks of the victory over death and the transformation of believers. Now, I want to just make a note of this, that it seems to indicate that Paul might have had the belief that many in his day would be resurrected, and that perhaps he believed that Jesus would come in his day. Look in verse 51. Paul writes, Behold, I will show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We'll talk about this more when we get to First and Second Thessalonians, but Paul seems to be indicating that he believed, perhaps, that not everybody would sleep or that everybody would die, but that Jesus would come and that there would be a changing of their bodies and that they would rise up. That's one way to read this. But whether or not Paul believed it, he is speaking of a change that will take place when people rise, either from the dead, or a change that will take place when people are on the earth when Jesus comes again. So the doctrine we need to teach is that there must be mortal people on earth during the millennium. If everyone dies and is resurrected, then everyone's immortal during the millennium, and we can't do the work of mortality. The millennium needs to continue the work of mortality, and we must have mortal people. So here's the doctrine. If you are mortal when he comes, you don't die in that moment. Your body is changed. It's transfigured. And you live as a mortal, but with a transfigured body. Doctrine and Covenants, section 63, verses 50 through 51. He that liveth when the Lord shall come and hath kept the faith, blessed is he. Nevertheless, it is appointed to him to die at the age of man. Now, Isaiah will give us a number. We'll get to that in a second. Therefore, children shall grow up until they become old. Old men shall die, but they shall not sleep in the dust, but they shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So because we need mortal people during the millennium, if you are mortal when he comes, you change, you transfigure into a mortal transfigured body, and you continue until the age of men. Now, Isaiah chapter 65 lists that age as 100. Now, I don't know if that's been a true translation. The Doctrine and Covenants doesn't give that specific age. So let's assume Isaiah is correct. If he were to come today, I am 54 years old. I would not die. I would be a 54-year-old transfigured mortal, and I would continue to live as a mortal. As soon as I hit that age of a man, whether it's 100 or something else, I don't die in the sense that my body and my spirit separate, and my body goes into a tomb and is buried in the ground. There are no funerals during the millennium. I die and resurrect as fast as I can blink my eye, in the twinkling of an eye. So one moment I'm mortal, and then before I can even blink my eyes, I have died and resurrected and have become an immortal. That's death in the millennium. 
So I'm sorry to tell all you mortuary owners and those who work in a morgue, you will be out of a job during the millennium. There are no funerals. There are no burials. There are no saying goodbye to a loved one in the millennium because they die and are resurrected as fast as you can blink your eyes. That's what Paul's talking about, that doctrine. Now, he thought he was close enough to the end that it might be possible in his day. Clearly, it was not. But everything that we have, every indication from the Scriptures, is that we are very close in our day to that time period. Yeah. So Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15 with this argument. In verse 54, he says, This corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul concludes this teaching with this idea that the sting of death is swallowed up by the Savior. And so because of that, stand fast in the faith, believe in Christ, and know that what you're doing has meaning and it has value. And to those naysayers amidst the Corinthian saints, Paul uses rhetoric of his day tools of argumentation to build a foundation showing them that the critical part of their faith, the origin of Christianity, is this idea of Christ being risen from the dead. And if we get that right, we're going to get a lot of other things correct as well. Do you see how this is the cornerstone of all that we believe? Jesus rising from the dead. I want to go back to verse 14, just kind of wrap this whole chapter up. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. Think about that. If Christ isn't resurrected, if there is no resurrection, then what are we doing in our temples? What are we doing preaching the gospel as missionaries? What's happening in sacrament meeting? All of this is vain if there is no resurrection. But there is a resurrection. It is the cornerstone of of our belief, Jesus rose from the dead. Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain because we have witnesses, witnesses then and witnesses today who testify of a risen Lord. This is a significant chapter, chapter 15. Now, the main message of 1 Corinthians 16 really revolves around practical instructions that Paul's going to give the Corinthian saints and a couple of his closing remarks. He's going to highlight the practical aspects of Christian living, such as being generous and supporting fellow believers. He's going to talk about hospitality and unity within the church. But really what Paul is going to do here at the end is just to encourage the believers in their faith and remind them of their responsibilities and express his love for them. And so he's going to talk about in the first verse remind them about the collection that he's put forth to kind of help some of the other saints. 
there. Now, he's also going to talk about his plans to travel, to go visit them. Look what he says in verse 5. Now, I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. But then he says, for I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permits, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. So he's probably writing this in the spring of 55 AD. That's probably when this is being written. The easiest way to travel from Ephesus to Corinth would be to cross over by a boat from Troas in Asia to Philippi and Macedonia, and then for Paul to take the westward road and turn south into Greece, as he did in his second missionary journey. And we read about that missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, verses 7 through 9. Now, Paul later delayed this visit, partly to avoid having to confront them forcefully. Now, we're going to talk about that next week. And so then he says in verse 6, It may be that I abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. Now, the seas were closed for travel in the winter. If Paul was in Corinth when the seas closed, he would stay there until the opening of the spring. And so we read in verse 8 that Paul's writing to them in the spring many months before the next winter. And so that kind of gives us the time period of when he's writing. Now, he also says this in verse 6. It may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. Now, that's the King James. I'm going to read another translation here. He says, in order that you might send me on my way wherever I might go. And I think a lot of scholars agree with this, this rendition in the sense of what Paul's doing is he's just politely requesting that the Corinthian saints pay for his passage. Remember, A lot of times, Paul's dependent upon the hospitality of his listeners to help him to do his work. And so when he says, I need your help to send me on my way wherever I might go, uh, he's basically relying on their hospitality. And this was a big deal in antiquity. And the Corinthian saints would have been honored to provide hospitality to him. I mean, think about this. When a missionary comes to your house, many members say this. They say, no, it's an honor for us to feed you. We're grateful to feed you because you represent the Lord. And so that was kind of the expectation. Now, There's a lot of business in this chapter, but to me, a really important verse, and we talked about this way at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, but I want to emphasize this again before we leave it. I really think an important verse in this chapter is verse 18. And the reason why I think this is important is because it discusses issues of authority. Stephanus, he's mentioned earlier as a leader. He's identified as somebody that the Corinthians need to trust, but also Paul is saying, hey, you guys need to submit to him. So here's how it reads in the King James. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. That's how it reads in the King James. That's a little bit clunky. So here's another way to translate that verse from the Greek, and it goes as follows. Therefore, give recognition to men such as these. In other words, When I send these individuals to you, and it's not just Stephanus, there's others. You can read them in verse 17. Paul is sending them 
to the Corinthian saints. So the way I'm reading this is Paul's in Ephesus. He's sending the people in Corinth a letter. These individuals are going to have to travel to take it to them. And Paul is saying at the end of the letter, you need to give recognition to these individuals as ones having authority. And that's kind of the end of the chapter. Now, there's some other bits here in the end. If you want to know more about some of the details about some of the verses that might be a little tricky for modern readers, go to the show notes. And that's the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. That brings us to the end of our second epistle. Now, do you notice how different this one was than Romans? Romans was a very, very different epistle, but Paul is speaking to people in a particular situation who need answers applied to their situation. Be careful not to take Paul's writings out of that context. Back to Elder Maxwell's comment that that's where doctrines become wild. Keep the teaching in the context in which Paul was speaking. He said he had a very different message to the Romans than he did to the Corinthians. Now, luckily, we have a second letter to the Corinthians, which we'll start next week. But even that one's going to be very different because they're asking different questions. Many of them are in a different situation, and the doctrines he teaches in the second epistle are very different. It's not a repeat of the first epistle. So that's how to understand better these epistles. As Paul writes to different groups, do what you can to come to understand what's the question, what's the audience, what were the specific circumstances they were facing, and keep the doctrine he's teaching specific to those circumstances. That's how to read Paul. We leave you this week with our witnesses that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead that he was resurrected. He brought himself forth from the dead and opened up that door that every one of us will go through. Every single person you love will come back from the dead and be restored to their perfect frame. And that reunion is going to be one of the most glorious things to look forward to in the future. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we talk about 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.